Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Ken Steinbach, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2012. Kenneth Steinbach, um, been at Bethel I think 17 years now, and I teach in the art department. Uh, the classes that I teach are sculpture, various sections of sculpture, uh, 3D design, uh, creative practices, and senior seminar. I was a Bethel student way back in the back in the day, back in the 70s, and I had uh, an opportunity to take a studio art class. I really didn't have any connection with art at all, you know, up through up through college, and when I got here. I kind of figured I'd end up in construction, which is kind of the family history. Uh, but I took an art class, and that really, it was a ceramics class with Gene Johnson, and that kind of transformed my life. And it was one of those experiences where, where once I started taking studio classes, it was like, oh, this is what I've been doing all my life, is I've kind of been doing this thing, but I never really called it art, and nobody in my life ever called it art. We just, it was just something that Ken did. Um, and so I got here and I, I took this class and it was, it was kind of a, a very transformative experience. And I pretty much, uh, that first year I just lived in the studios, you know. Uh, all my other classes went right down in the, down the crapper, so to speak. I was sort of wonderful slash terrible. Um, because I, I, it's not an exaggeration to say that, that quite often I did literally live in the studios. Um, and that, that was true here, that was true, you know, in graduate school. Um, and I, I just was really pretty obsessed. I mean, I had had 18 years of my life where I was doing this thing and I never really knew what it was called. I never really knew the value of it. I was just always drawn to make things and always drawn to make things in a really particular way that were about things that I was thinking about. I was using the process of making to process ideas, to think through ideas. Um, and that just was so weird in like in my context growing up that I didn't really have a language for it. So when I got here and somebody finally said, oh, by the way, artists have been doing this for millennia, and this is how it works, and this is what it's about, um, I, I just could not get enough of that. It was like, I, it was like the, um, the physical process was catching up for me. There was, some, there was a part of my, of my psyche or my mind that was like catching up to this experience that I really needed to just live in for a long time. So I just lived in the studio. Uh, and just made stuff constantly. I made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artworks. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, just so much stuff. Uh, and, and almost all of it was terrible. Uh, and a lot of it, you know, a few things were good here and there, but a lot of it was terrible. But it was all a way of thinking. Uh, the downside of that, of course, was I really was not, you know, I was interested in, in other classes, you know, math and science. I mean, I, I, you know, the Bible classes that I had, I had a, a minor, minor in Bible. Um, you know, those were important to me, but really I was most interested in, in the way that they connected to the studio experience that I was having. So if they kind of fit with that, I would invest in them. If not, it was like, let's just, let's just get a C or B and get out of here, uh, head back to the studio. Uh, and as a result, Gene Johnson, who was Gene Johnson Gallery, which was the gallery's named after him, um, he hired me to be his TA. And so I was his TA for the following year, and then the third year, when I was th as a junior, I was a TA. Gene uh, had some health issues, and he had to leave. And so this was about mid-November. Um, and so as his TA, uh, it was kind of too late to bring somebody else into the to replace him. So they just asked me if I would sort of pick it up, and um, so I did. So I ended up teaching his classes for about six weeks as well as being the TA, as well as being a student full-time. Uh, and that was sort of the moment where it clicked for me. It's like, yeah, I really, this is what I want to do. It just felt right. It was a crazy amount of work. 
but it just felt right. It was something that's like, yeah, it's like this is these are all of the things that I'm very interested in. You know, it was hard. I mean, it's, it's jobs finding teaching jobs. Uh, is difficult and so it's challenging. Um, I actually was somewhere else before I was here for a while. Never really thought I would end up back at Bethel University. It worked out um, that I that a position opened up when Stuart left and so I was able to, to come back here. But that was never really an overarching goal for me. But teaching really was. I really love teaching. Uh, my other institution that I taught at, which was Northwestern, just down the road here, I taught there for seven years. Uh, and I taught everything. I taught studio classes, like literally every studio class I taught. I taught, uh, they were on trimesters at that time, and I had, um, I was teaching nine different classes a, a year. Uh, nine, like, not, not, not nine classes, I mean like nine different subject areas a year. Um, and so that was a big formative experience for me, was to get into that experience, you know, as a very young instructor, uh, and being forced to sort of teach all these different content areas. It was very much a trial by fire. You know, it's like, Ken, can you teach printmaking? Oh yeah, I could teach printmaking. And I would sort of jump into it and, and kind of learn as I went. Um, but both of those, I would say both of those experiences, which were kind of extreme and they're each in their own way, were, were very formative and sort of like, yeah, this is where I want to go. One of the things that I've always, always done in my career is I've never really made distinctions between sort of you know one field and another and I still don't and sort of book that I just wrote kind of breaks down some of those divisions um, I'm not that interested in 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 creating those walls and so for me it was very fluid you know and Stuart was literally 20 feet down the hall uh, and I would see this guy I didn't know who he was I just heard him talking and kind of introduced myself and and started a conversation with this guy who was down there um, and he was a he was a big personality. You know, Stuart was a he was a physically big guy. He was, um, you know, both Stuart and Dale Dale Johnson, who was here at that time. Uh, they both had their distinctive ways of dealing with students. But one of the things that they had in common was a belief, like a really foundational belief, that art mattered to the person and art mattered to the Christian faith. And they approached from very different perspectives. But that was a conversation I was very interested in having. Uh, and so I'd kind of go bug Stewart, and, and uh, he was, um, you know, he was great to work with because he would take the time. I would, you know, and we kind of went through this cycle for, for years, literally for years, where I would just make a lot of things, you know, in class or outside of class, and I would just haul him down to the studio, and I would go get Stewart and make him talk about it. Sometimes he didn't really want to talk about it, but I would, you know, I just kept like bugging this guy, um, and, and we had this conversation over a long period of time, um, you know, about, about ideas. I'm not quite sure, like, how I made that transition. It was a very seamless and pretty fluid transition where I just was you know, kind of obsessed with these ideas that I wanted to explore. And he was, um, you know, he was so gracious with his time and, and allowed me to, uh, to explore these things with him. I find myself, um, like, channeling, <laughs> channeling the spirit of Stuart and Dale from time to time, you know, literally hearing their words come out of my mouth occasionally, which is very funny. Um, I would say, uh, maybe I would say the thing that I hope that I, that I took away and, and learned from them was again this foundational idea that art matters. And you know, art is, art is responsive to culture, it's responsive to time, it's responsive to place. Uh, and teaching likewise is responsive to you know, similar things. And so uh, teaching is always a different experience. You, know, you don't teach now the way that we taught 10 years ago. If you're teaching now the way we taught 10 years ago, you're kind of failing as a teacher. Um, and, and so I would say I don't, it's not so much in the mechanics of it, but in the emphasis and the spirit of it, that's absolutely. And those guys, I mean, back in the day, they really had to be fighters because at, this, at that time in this place, in the 60s and 70s when they started, an evangelical art department was a total oxymoron. It's like, what are you doing this for? It's like, what, what, is art, what could art possibly have to do with the Christian faith? And they really had to be very tough and very savvy about how they created space for that conversation. And that's something that I still feel important. I think there's much greater awareness today about that, largely in part to people like Stuart and Dale and Gene Johnson and George Robinson, who was another instrumental person for me, and uh, you know, Wayne Russo, you know, folks like that. Um, but the need for that, I think, is, is a thing that I try to carry with me. That's kind of the, the, the most important stone or gem that I've, I think I've taken out of that. The environment of the student right now that's coming to Bethel 
Um, they are coming from a culture of assessment in K-12 education that we've created after the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. You know, and, and what this has done is this has shaped educational experiences into finely crafted packages, content packages, with very clear outcomes, very clear objectives. Uh, and students very seldom now experience situations where they have to face open-ended questions, you know, things, you know, ambiguity, like the potential for multiple outcomes, uh, you know, situations like that. So that's, that's very challenging for them. There's a lot of things in, in their life right now which would, which, you know, there's just not a lot of experience with that. And so when students come to studio classes or any classes, frankly, right now, I really think that there is a certain, um, you know, they, they have very little experience with that, very little exposure to it, uh, and so that's deeply challenging. And they, they don't know what to do with it. And so a lot of what we do, and frankly, this a class that I designed called Creative Practices is entirely about sort of addressing this specific issue. It's like, how do you get students to experiment? How do you get them to sort of invest in all of these things that we want them to do that, that they don't have time to do because college is super expensive? Uh, and they're trying to get out of here as fast as they can. The digital experience is, is um, I'm, a, I'm not a Luddite, you know, I embrace digital platforms and experiences are huge additions to the field of art, but they also can be um, limiting in terms of an over-reliance on digital platforms because again, a lot of the outcomes are very clear and they're very shaped, uh, they're very concrete and they're very self-determined. You're, you're in, digital, in the digital world, you're always choosing between a spectrum of choices, which is very different than a material world in which you are constantly responsive in a physical way to the materials that you're wrestling with. Um, so there's a lot of things, a lot of pressures, I would say, in, for students right now as they come into a studio experience where they, they don't have, where we have to work very hard to sort of acclimate them to this idea that failure is a really good thing. And it, it's, you know, creative practices, uh, it's kind of this class of unre unrelenting experimentation. They literally just have to experiment for 90 minutes a day, five days a week for 14 weeks. That's the whole class is just sort of this relentless experimentation. And it's amazing that the progress that they make uh, when faced with that kind of activity. So it's, it's really productive. Um, they, learn, they learn to kind of get past this idea of perfectionism. Perfectionism is a huge thing uh, for our students coming in right now. You know, feeling like everything that they have to do, they don't want to waste any time, uh, mostly because they don't have any time. You know, it's like everybody's working full time and taking 18 credits, you know, because college is so expensive. Uh, and so they, they just feel like this super time crunch, which is really having a big impact on on their ability to learn. The students at the beginning of the semester outline uh, a, a constellation of things that they're interested in exploring. It could be, you know, maps and geology and this and that and, you know, watercolor, it's like whatever. They just have to outline a, a collection of things that they're, that they're interested in. Um, and then they go into the studio. They're not allowed to work on anything for more than a day. They have to experiment. I don't want them to make finished artwork. Um, and so then they bring everything they've done. At, after a week, every Monday, they bring in everything that they've done, which is typically about a dozen works for, for most students. And for the first couple of weeks, it's super common for them to come in and it's like, well, you know, I brought these, but I didn't bring these over here. I don't want to show these because these are not very good. It's like, well, that's not what the class is about. The class is about bringing in everything and showing it. Um, and uh, another really essential part of the class is um, a re creating a different relationship to that experience because the class would not work if I then came in and said, oh, by the way, this one's better than that one. That one's, you should do more of that. It's like, no, it's like, it's about creating a very different relationship to the process of making it. And so for the first couple of weeks, uh, we're very careful. I often don't even comment on what students are doing. I, I, we get into smaller groups and the students, uh, different student groups get together and they talk about it. Uh, and they do really create a different narrative about it. It's like, why am I making these things? Why is what I made this week different than what I made last week? Um, but absolutely, the first couple weeks, students are coming in and they're still thinking that this is about making finished work and they're completely uptight. And it takes a lot of sort of unwinding uh, for them to, to do this. And sometimes, I mean, it, it, like some students really get panicky. I mean, literally sort of panicky about that. Um, where they, you know, it's like they, they just can't believe that what I want them to do is to just make things for 90 minutes a day, whether it's good or not. Um, because they have been so acclimated 
to uh, this idea of um, you know failures, failure in everything about their experience in education up until that point has suggested that failure is always negative in every aspect. Failure is never generative. It never sort of kicks out any other ideas because the standards and the objectives and the goals are always predetermined. It's like, bam, this is it. And if you don't hit that, you, well, you're just not a very good student or you're not smart or you're not working hard enough. So all those things are judgmental, first of all, and they're also very um, isolating. They're also, they're, like I said, they're not generative. They don't sort of lead anywhere else. Where, um, you know, once students start to get into this habit and, and make a few things and make a ton of stuff and they bring it into their colleagues and it's like, well, let's look at these because I think these are the better ones. And suddenly a colleague is saying, well, what about this over here? This is actually quite nice. Um, and so they start to really loosen up about what those possibilities are. Uh, they start to think about their work differently. They have start to have a, a different relationship to their practice. Um, and also, I mean, it's a really dumb kind of pragmatic thing, but frankly, defining the class relative to time. 60% of the class, almost 70% of the class, is uh, the, the grade is, is based on how many hours they work. It's like, it's, I, don't, I don't really care what they make. I do care, but I don't, but not in that way. Um, and it, it really is just about, you know, how much time are you clocking in? And it creates a different relationship. Um, and it, it seems very uh, Pavlovian or feels very, very behavioral in a way. But, um, you know, I did this study where I interviewed about 75 or 80 mid-career artists to figure out how they work. And I found that actually this kind of relationship to time is one of the biggest indicators of a successful practice. It's uh, students, when, they, when you give students a project, what students will most frequently do is they will try to figure out a way to get the project done successfully in the least amount of time. That's just, that's, that's, this is America, that's what we do. We, we're all about efficiency. Um, professional artists, pros, the people who are having really successful careers, they don't work like that. What they do is that they set hours around their time. So they say, every day I'm gonna be in my studio from nine to three in the afternoon. Uh, and during that time, I'm just going to work. And I'll work on things that I have. And when I'm done working on projects that I've pitched or obligations that I have, I'm going to work on other things. Um, and so that reorients a person's relationship to, to what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so rather than meeting objectives, uh, the objectives suddenly kind of get tossed out the window to some degree. Or, they, or maybe I would say they get kind of exploded and they get expanded. And, and so the artist is constantly saying to themselves, oh, this is an interesting thing that I just completed and I'm done with it. You know, I've got another hour and a half. It's like, what if, what if I take this thing and I turn it inside out and I try it this other way? And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of relationship uh, that's super important um, in developing a, a, a strong and vibrant, you know, a robust practice. And it's very easy to be dismissive of that, you know, because, uh, like I said, so many things in our culture, it's like, you know, we're all about efficiency. We're all about, you know, let's, let's find the objective, let's figure out what to do, let's figure out how we can do it faster, we'll make more money, and we can sort of, you know, get on. It's like, well, art is a different enterprise. And I, I would say, you know, it's clearly that's the case in art, but I think that extrapolates out into a lot of things, too. You know, this, this quest for efficiency or the, the way that we are focusing on efficiencies, uh, which is really kind of one of the, the byproducts nobody really talks about, in this culture of assessment, you know, a result of the, the no child left behind is the byproduct is that we're really teaching students unhelpful efficiencies, um, which are which are kind of killing us. The differences between the two different types of classes are, are, I think, they're obvious and apparent at the outset because creative practices is clearly one that's interiorly. In, you know, focused on the interior person. It's about changing a relationship to what they're doing. Um, where classes like sculpture, uh, you know, they, they do, we do have clear objectives. You know, it's like at the end of the semester, you have to have so many finished artworks done that we can look at, that we can stand there uh, and evaluate. Um, and so I would say the focus on finished objects in the other studio classes is, um, you know, that, that's pretty clear. And I think that that's... Um, I think that that's kind of an, in, in that way it relates, I think, to, to most, to many other classes here at the university. It's like it's not that different than cranking out a paper. It's not that different than sort of a successful experiment. There's a product at the end where you actually have to, to make it work. Creative practices is, like I said, it's much more focused on 
um, it's completely upended. And and one of the things that I realized that I did after I designed the course was that I that I literally sort of took all of the power in the class and I gave it to all the students. It's like I I mean like I. You know, they self-report their time, you know, so if they lie about it, I talk with them about it, but I give them the power to do that if they choose. Uh, and some students, you know, badly use that power at first, but generally uh, towards by mid-semester, they're starting to be more self-directed. A curious thing that happens in that class is that even though I don't allow them to make finished objects, and even though it's all about experimentation, at the end of the semester, almost without exception, they, more, they make more good finished work in that class than they do in other studio classes. I'm not saying it's a genius of this class. I'm saying it's, I think actually what's happening is that students have a lot of sort of pent up ideas, a lot of ideas knocking around, uh, and it's just an opportunity for them to, to just engage a lot of things. But part of it really is just this emphasis on volume. You know, like it's one of those, there's, a, there's many sort of anecdotal studies or anecdotal things that, you know, the, the tales that we hear about as artists of, you know, you can focus on quality or you can focus on volume. If you focus on volume, uh, as a teacher, people make more and they make better stuff, uh, which is actually true. This class totally bears that out. Like if you focus on developing a process and don't get hung up on finished objects, uh, in the end, the students actually will make a lot more finished objects. It's like really nice stuff. They just finished up the book. It's coming out here in a couple of months. Um, and so I, I kind of have the documentation now. I had the, you know, the experience with the class, which I think I've taught seven or eight times now, and the, the book, which is more or less a text for that. Um, I, I think it's huge. I think the implications are, are big. And I actually, I'm interested in talking to people in business and industry. I would love to make those connections and say, um, was, when, I, when I was reading uh, to maybe put this book together and put the class together, I went through about a three or four foot stack of these books. Um, you know, everything from books that are about, you know, it's like classroom teaching, creativity, making art, it's like all this big, you know, shelves full of these books. The best ones, in my opinion, were frequently the ones that came out of business and industry because they do tend to be a little bit nuts and boltsy. You know, it's like, like if you want to create a, a healthy group dynamic, part of that depends on design. You know, and the ones that come out of the art world, I don't actually like that much because they tend to get really ephemeral and dreamy and not that concrete. And I, I actually happen to think that, that, um, that as people, we do tend to respond in similar ways to a lot of similar situations. Um, so anyway, I would love to, to make those connections because I, you know, you can go back and look at um, the Bell Labs, uh, the guy who sort of oversaw the Bell Labs for a long time, kind of talked about that as a great book. And one of the aspects of that was he talked about this thing that Google is also now doing. It's like a certain part of a certain fragment of time every week that the engineers get, they are required to work on their own projects. It's like, and like I said, Google is doing that right now. That's exactly what this class is. It is, um, it's about giving people an opportunity to, uh, to fail and to try some things and to uh, experiment in a way that, that where they're, um, they're given complete license and freedom uh, and almost even in a way kind of required to fail or uh, you know, given the opportunity to be unobserved. And frankly, un being unobserved is a real rarity these days. But just to like work in a laboratory without somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, oh, by the way, you know, how's that going to pay for itself? But the investment that Google is making, that you know, the Bell Labs is making, you know, paid off, have paid off in huge ways, and you can statistically prove this. Um, and yet in a quest for efficiencies, you know, certain kind of efficiencies, or maybe, like I said, as a byproduct of you know, the no child left behind thing, you know, the, 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 the efficiencies that are, that are um, promoted and pushed and become an inherent part of that system, eliminate that. You know, it's like there's no incentive. There's no incentive in our current K through 12 education for a person to spend 10% of their time on outside reading. It's like, what good is it? You know, where in the past I think it has good. I think that there's huge implications. I think, frankly, I think this class is kind of remediation for things that we have lost through some of the educational moves and also some of the pressures of digital platforms too. Digital platforms tend to put pressure on this kind of thinking as well. I would say my personality absolutely shows up in my teaching, but no, I don't think teachers are. Um, I, I've never, you know, until I got to college and had that experience with, you know, with Gene and being forced to do that, I never even thought it would be possible because I'm typically a very quiet guy. 
you know, and it's like I don't like to speak in, in crowds. Um, you know, I'm not the guy that's, that's, you know, the gregarious one, and I just thought I don't have the personality to do something like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a maker of my whole life. Um, and then I realized that, that once, that I really love to teach the things that I'm interested in. And so it was, you know, a certain kind of content area. I was really, you know, the, that really works for me. I love to talk about that, and I have a lot to say about things like that. Um, so I would say, uh, I, I, no, I don't believe that teachers are made at all. Everybody, it's like making art. It's like you, you work for where you're from. You figure out ways to make it, make it work. I had some pretty interesting experiences early on because I grew up, my dad was a contractor. I grew up on job sites. Uh, I have a natural affinity for, aside from having that experience, I just have a natural affinity for making things. It's like I pick up processes very quickly. Uh, I know how to do it. I just know how to do a million things. Um, and so when it came time to teach students, um, I was at a bit of a loss because I realized when I literally stand in front of a class, like, how are you going to tell somebody to do this? It's like, wow, I never really, th I've never really thought about how I actually, you know, go through this process. Uh, the grad school that I went to, wonderful place, but the, the philosophy behind the grad school was very, uh, very open, you know, very much, you know, find your own path. And so there weren't classes in you know, and like doing this or doing that, it was just like, you know, it was another kind of experience. It was all self-directed, self-driven. Uh, to some degree, some of my most important classes here at Bethel were like that too. And so my earlier years were like, how do I actually do this? Like, how do I explain what I'm doing? Because so much of my experience so far has been very intuitive. You know, it's like I, I sort of work from this position. Um, and so I had to go back and kind of relearn that language. Like, you know, put myself... Uh, be, I had to become a very close observer of students. It's like, like what part of what am I teaching are they really getting and what part are they kind of like falling down on? Um, and use that to kind of go back and just kind of re constantly reassess because it wasn't, um, I, I actually did better in the classes, like teaching drawing, which is also always one of my favorite classes to teach. I love teaching drawing. Uh, I always did well in that because uh, I'm not a natural drawer. And so when I when it came to draw, I had to really learn the process for myself, and uh, you know things like you know drawing and printmaking, which are a little bit more technical that way, you know worked well. But sculpture has always been the hardest one for me because it's like I I don't really think about this stuff. I just grab the tool and go, um, and so that's been harder. There's certain mechanics in painting and drawing. You know you just have to. You know, you're going to draw a tree, a person, a car, whatever. It's like there, there are things that are pretty scalable from one experience to the next, where sculpture is much more generative, especially the kind of sculpture, contemporary sculpture, is much more generative, it's much more contextual. My teaching philosophy in the arts is really that everything comes from the experience of, like, the hands moving. You know, it's like if the hands are going, uh, and so I start with that. It's like all the projects that I generate, all the projects that I give my student, you know, require uh, physical making. They're, they're not pieces that maybe start so much on the drawing board and transition to that. They're pieces that, that start with, here's the two by four, you gotta cut up the two by four into little bits, and then you gotta glue those together to do a thing. Um, and so in that process of getting the hands going, um, you know, that, that, uh, that sparks ideas. And that, that's another sort of big observation out of all of the research that I did was that um, that that's by far the most common way that artists are making things is that they is that you know when the hand is going sort of the mind that's when the mind starts and that's again sort of very different from digital platforms digital world that's very different from educational experiences that a lot of students have had where it's typically the other way around it's like first you design the thing and then you get the two by four and you cut up the two by four and so I do tend to prioritize like physical motion activity, you know, that, that muscular motion, that, that kinesthetic thing, walking across the floor, you know, getting the thing, you know, making drawings, uh, experiences like that, which I think do kind of demystify it in a different way. I also had Dale as a teacher and, you know, him sort of whipping out a, you know, blocking in a painting, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, you learn more in 10 minutes watching somebody doing that than, you know, a couple hours on your own. Um, so, I, so I'm in favor of, of both, absolutely. Uh, but perhaps down in sculpture, it's a little bit, um, it's, it's, it's maybe not quite as um, easy to, you know, to transfer directly from, from instructor to student, uh, just because given the nature of some of the projects. One of my instructors along the way uh, used to say, you know, if you get stuck, if you get stuck in the studio, just start, just sweep the floor. And 
Like, it's amazing how often it works. And, I mean, it's a trick that I use myself. It's like I, I get stuck, I just, start, I just start cleaning. And there is something about that experience, which is, um, which I think is something we don't value so much in a Western society, which where most of our ideas are highly analytical. Uh, we, don't, we don't tend to think in those terms. Our theology at a place like Bethel doesn't tend to affirm, you know, the, the value of, um, you know, sort of physical action, physical motion. I think we're better now than we used to be, but, um, but even so, still we tend to minimize that a lot more, where other parts of the world, I think, have a greater understanding of the connection between mind and body. You know, it's like literally sort of moving in action and, and thinking with, through your hands, thinking with your hands. You know, I, I, I frequently will tell my students that, um, you know, that uh, you got to think with your hands, which means that you start, like literally sort of start building. And you want to talk about obstacles. Well, are, are students resistant? That's where, that's where they're resistant. I say, you know, it's like the first project that I was describing, which is they start with two by fours, they cut the two by fours into little strips. Uh, the goal of that project is that they have to make an object that, non-representational object, that appears to have a sense of motion, but it's not actually moving. Um, and it's really difficult to draw this project. It's very difficult to sort of solve this before you start putting things together. And I have students where I will come in and they got all the wood sort of processed and stripped down and like a pile of sticks. It's like, I don't know what to do. It's like, you just got to start. And I'll come back an hour later and they're like, I don't know what to do. It's like, you just got to start. Um, and I come back a day later and it's like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, finally, once they get going, and that, that can be a big hurdle, you know, once they actually get going, it's like, bam, they explode. And then it really goes, you know, and then they, they get it. Um, but that initial hesitation of starting without an objective, which is so foundational in art, you know, really, uh, or starting with, maybe not without any objectives, but starting without firm objectives or allowing the process to emerge, allowing the objective to emerge from an interactive process. That's something that I think is, um, uh, it, it's difficult to, to challenge, but it's really, uh, and, it, and you know, it's like, a, like that anxiety of that never goes away. I mean, there's anxiety about it, but I'm at the same spot. I've been making art for 30 years and I hit the studio and, it's like, I know that's how to start, but there's tension there for me too. It's a constant source of, of not bad anxiety, but it's a constant source of anxiety and tension within the work. Um, I think the, the difference between the people that, that can live with that and the people that aren't is the people that can live with that, they, f they figure out ways to enjoy it. They, they start to celebrate that, they start to embrace it, they, they start to understand the wisdom of that. Uh, and they can learn to kind of live within that tension. But it's never, I don't think, a completely easy tension. There's always something about that that's uncomfortable, always. It's like part of the challenge for us as teachers is to get the students to sort of realize that that uncomfortableness is not, you know, it's like that uncomfortableness is okay. You know, that tension is okay. You know, now having taught at Christian colleges for 24 years, um, I used, to, I used to give out a lot of um, conversation about, you know, being able to talk holistically about, you know, things that are personal and an and un unencumbered conversation where you can sort of wander wherever you go. But I've done workshops at MCAD and, you know, other institutions and I've talked to people and I actually, I don't know that I think that that's true anymore. Um, because I've had, what I find, and you know, after interviewing all these people that, you know, I never once myself brought up any kind of spiritual content, but it was amazing how frequently students and, and these people that I interviewed would kind of go to a spiritual place, you know, with the conversation. Like when you really listen, it's like, well, you know, what's that about? You know, it's like, tell me about this piece that you're going on. And it's, it's pretty common that those conversations become sp spiritual in some, in some way you know, how they understand spirituality. Um, and so I think it's perhaps a little arrogant. Now, speaking strictly for myself, I think it would feel a little arrogant to say that we're the only ones that can sort of authentically, you know, speak to spiritual concerns. Um, I find myself trying to, you know, in, in terms of my teaching, I think that it is uh, really important to challenge students in a really healthy way about their spirituality. It's like Thomas Merton has got a quote that I really love. It's, I'm going to mangle it. I'm not going to get it right. 
but something, you know, he's talking about theologies and when, when theology is about certainty, um, words multiply like flies. You know, it's like there's just no end to the finer and finer nuances of legalities that we can construct for ourselves. Um, and I like to figure out ways to maybe approach it differently so that students are forced to deconstruct some of the things that they thought that they knew to come to a better understanding. It's like, I don't, I don't think it's my goal that, you know, I have had teachers who literally feel it's their goal to tear down a student's spirituality. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I don't, that's a little too aggressive for me. But I do think it's important to, um, to give students to complicate their theology in a way that, that makes them wrestle with like, why are you doing this? Like, like what, is, what is this about? Like, what are these goals about? And that's, I would say that's um, an, an important part of that. And, and the, you know, the, the instructors that I've had, both at Christian institutions and non-Christian institutions, um, you know, who feel like their goal is to, is to deconstruct their, their students' faith um, is maybe a prejudice against that. You know, a, a, you know, a certain kind of prejudice against, you know, I had teachers here when I was here who kind of felt st students' faith experiences were in inherently simplistic. And it was their job to like sort of get them down, you know, break them down, and then you can build them up again. It's like, I don't find that's true at all. I don't think that's really simplistic. Faith is related to age in any, you know, in any way whatsoever. Um, I am just a lot more interested, I think, in in helping students to, to come to a richer understanding of their faith on their own terms, which means, I think, understanding and accepting who they are as, as people of faith. It's like, like, who are you? Isn't it curious that our faith is not easy? I mean, maybe that's the way that I would say it. It's like, you know, isn't it curious that our faith is not easy? It's, you know, it's like, we like nature. Who doesn't like nature? Isn't it interesting that Annie Dillard said in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek that if you think you see God in nature, what does it say about the nature of God that 60% of the creatures in the world are parasites? You know, it's like that's a really great question because it both affirms that relationship but it complicates it in a way that causes students to really wrestle with it over a long period. I still don't have an answer to that question. I read it 20 years ago, you know, and, um, and those are maybe the, the attitudes that I like about, you know, in terms of relating spiritual content in the classroom. I think that there's room I think the art experience is, is very broad. Um, and in visual art, it's very easy to kind of package it down and distill it down. Um, you know, every field kind of has their, their, their ways that they, you know, think about their own fields. Um, I think it gives us a language to talk about things that are complicated and important. You know, so I, so this guy that used to be married to my sister, his name was uh, Ken, and uh, Ken was, um, He's about 10 years older than me, and he was in Vietnam. At one point, he was given a choice. He was standing in front of a judge. He could either go to jail or he could go to the military. And so he chose the military and ended up in Vietnam. Uh, many years later, then he married my sister and spent a lot of time fishing with Ken over the years. And, and this is a guy who, you know, you thought, I never had any context for making art. This guy, like, had no, no context whatsoever. You know, very rough upbringing out on the East Coast. and. And, uh, and whatnot, but, you know, and he was very curious about this thing that I did, you know, teaching art. At, at that time I was making art and I had gone to grad school. And so sitting around in this, you know, on the shore kind of talking about things, um, you know, he just didn't like get it. It's like, I don't get it. And until one day we started talking about the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial. And, um, you know, and I was curious because I didn't bring that up, but Ken brought that up. And uh, he talked about how powerful it was, partly because he knew guys whose names were on a wall, but also he like really kind of got that piece in a way that was really powerful and important. Um, and I would say, you know, experiences like that, you know, that, that can package meaning for us or allow us to experience things in ways that are ineffable. Um, you know, it's like you can, you can talk all you want to about what it means to lose somebody, you know, to guy, a, a, for a military guy to, you know, lose a colleague. Um, you know, you can talk about that and, and orate and speechify and do all of that stuff. But put those guys in front of that wall and that's an experience that's really powerful and it's deep. And, they, and it really is a tremendously effective object. 
And I'd say like, you know, moments like that, obviously those are big moments, you know, but there are moments like that where, where the, the nature of our physical experience walking around in the world is so important and so foundational, um, you know, that you just can't get to those, those moments of meaning through language. It's like language is just, it's not a big enough bucket to, to carry all that content. So you have to have a, there's a physicality that's really important. And I think there's, there's a lot of things in our lives that are like that. You know, I think architecture, uh, architecture memorial is huge. I think portraiture, you know, if you kind of go back to the, sort of the classic, you know, what are the classic art themes? You got architecture, you got portraiture, you got landscape, um, you know, you have, you know, abstraction. And those moments you know, where we experience those, you know, in our lives are, are powerful and they're important and they, they carry meaning, they carry content for us in a way that, that language just can't. Language is just not up to the task. Language is, is really, really excellent for many things, but it's not the, f it's not the fullest experience. Um, and so I think it's important to participate in art. And I don't really make a big distinction between sort of making and, and you know, people that make and people that don't. Uh, a curious thing about art makers, and this again, it's like I hear this all the time from artists that I talk about is, is they are not sort of having this idea and getting the idea and then putting the idea out there in a way in which it's about communication. It's like they don't talk about their experience of making like that at all. What they say is, I made this thing and I don't understand it. And you stand here beside me and maker and viewer and we try to figure this thing out together, which is so weird. It's like, I don't know, like where does that come from? You know, I can, I know where I think it comes from, but like where does that come from? Um, and so in that regard, I don't think there's really a huge distinction between maker and viewer because we're all, we're all wrestling with this thing together. You know, clearly they have different roles, but, um, you know, but, but it is important to have these moments, to have these ideas and these, these um, arenas in our lives, these spaces in our lives where we can uh, experience these things, you know, that are, that are really important and powerful. They can't be contained in any other way. Artists talk about ourselves having practices, which is sort of one of those weird words, but you know, our artistic practice is a body of ideas that is distinctive to the individual. It's a, a collection of works, thinking, ideas, thoughts, you know, sources, influences, context uh, that they are supporting and nurturing in order to create meaning within community. Uh, and so all of these, you know, everybody's practice is unique. It's like everybody's. And some of those absolutely, um, you know, require you know, some of that content. One of the, the curious things that, that, you know, in this, uh, I keep going back to the study, I hope you're not getting bored with this, but I just found this so illuminating to talk to these really, uh, one of the criteria that I had for this study was that everybody that I interviewed had to be a better artist than I was, more successful and a better artist. Um, so immediately there was a lot of humility here. Um, but when I was talking to these people, it's like, well, tell me what you read. You know, like literally sort of tell me the kinds of things that you, you read. And I, I realized early on that I had to keep asking, you know, because um, I would, somebody would tell me something and say, oh, okay, it's like, what else? And they'd mention something else and it's, oh, what else? And, and they would just keep going. And what I found was that almost like the huge percentage of these people, like 80%, 70%, I think, are reading more than three content areas simultaneously. It's like, so what does this mean? It's like they're taking in a lot of content. Um, why does that, why is that important? Like, I don't, I don't really know that I can quantify why that's important, but it does seem to be really important to create a relationship to the outside world. Uh, and what's really interesting is like, what are these people reading? It's like, you would think it would be criticism, art history, fiction, like, nope. It's like number one is hard science. And, and very frequently these people are like really deep in the woods in terms of like reading about, you know, memory or, you know, you know, physics, you know, certain, um, uh, you know, astrophysics or whatever, you know, whatever it is. These are not, this is not like casual observation. These are people that are digging deeply into their content areas in really curious ways. It's like, I don't, I mean, I really pounded my head against that for a long time. It's like, why is that important? Like, what, what is it about that that is really an essential thing? And I, and I think my hunch, I could never prove this, and so I didn't really talk about it too much in my book, but my hunch is that it's creating analogous experiences for us in our minds. 
You know, it's like artists are people that that are preoccupied with ideas. We keep coming back to the same ideas over and over and over again. And I think what's happening there is that we are finding analogous experiences in different content areas. Um, that there's just something about that, that that is very curious. So on the one hand, it's like it gives us something to think about that's not ourselves. It's like, you know, if, you don't really, you very, very seldom actually find artists who are making work about themselves, which isn't that a curious thing. You know, think about how often students make work about themselves, and yet you get out into the rest of, you know, in professional world, that's not what's happening. It's like, so artists are finding ways, you know, contents and content and ideas and, and other things that are about, uh, you know, science and business and industry and history and philosophy and like all these things. Uh, and then way down, about four or five clicks down in the, in the priority, then you get in some art history and some stuff like that. But for the most part, it's this other kind of content that they're taking in. When I first started teaching, um, the department chair at Northwestern at the time was this guy named Mark Baden. And uh, Mark came from an art education background. And I'm eternally grateful for this guy who, when I would start teaching, you know, I was fresh out of graduate school and my, my conversation was like sort of way up at the top. Um, you know, it's really talking to other grad students and, you know, he occasionally would sort of drop by the classroom just to see how it was going. Super gracious guy. And, uh, you know, just like, well, maybe you got to talk about sort of the nuts and bolts a lot more. And just, you know, in these conversations and watching him, I really learned to appreciate the value of kind of the mechanics of it, the craft of it, you could say. Uh, but at the same time, he and I had disagreements about sort of the art of it because, you know, he was, I think, perhaps a little bit lodged more in the, in the idea that, that everything in art was teachable. And I kind of came, and I still kind of come from this place where a lot of stuff is teachable. Um, but there's still something, you walk up to the edge of the, the abyss and you can look in, but you can't, you can't, you know, you can't define it all. Um, and so part of our job, I think, as teachers is to both hit the craft and also uh, support, support the mystery, um, especially in the arts. You know, there's something there that you, you literally can't define. And if you define it, you kill it. And doing that is, you know, you find yourself, I find myself in the, in the studio talking a lot around ideas. You know, it's like you can't, like if you say it, you kill it. So you have to kind of talk around things. Um, supporting things, you know, nurturing every little, every little ember that kind of comes along, a spark of an idea to, to get that going. Um, and so that's a part I think is probably a little bit more of, a, of an art, is finding those things that are distinctive to the, to the individual. Um, and the things that are distinctive to the individual are things that we've never seen before. And just humans as a species, we're resistant to the new. We're always resistant to the new. And so part of the job is, you know, a student will come up with something. It's like, wow, I've really never seen that before. We can't possibly do that. You know, it's like they should, we should steer them into something. Like, oh, wait, that's right. That's the valuable thing. Uh, and students are even worse in this way. You know, they think anything that I'm doing that's not like everybody else's, what everybody else is doing, you know, that's problematic. Um, so part of the goal for the teacher then is to, is to nurture that. It's like, yes, you really do want this stuff to be, to look very different, to have a, a distinctive voice in everything else that's out there. And that's really challenging, I think, for a student to hear because, again, we don't come from a culture that really supports it that much. I think my expectations are very different than, than student expectations. Um, I think students come into my classroom with a level of belief, a certain level of belief in their own abilities. And I would say that never matches my belief in their abilities. Um, and it's, you know, for the most part, um, I think that my students can do way, way more uh, than they think they can do. Um, and um, I'm, I'm super optimistic in that regard. And I would say one of the things that I'm constantly doing in my classes is, you know, it's like last, last year I had this experience where you know, this guy was in my class and, and uh, you know, we were just kind of shooting the breeze after class at one point and he was talking about, at some point I want to make a boat, you know, it's like, well, you got a studio right here, you know, you got all the equipment, it's like, make the boat, you know, it's like, let's do it. And, you know, he about fell on the floor, it's like, I can't possibly make, it's like, are you kidding? It's like, this is totally solvable. Um, so he made a boat in the class, um, didn't quite get it done, but pretty close. Um, but I would say that that is, 
that's a, a very concrete story um, to something that happens frequently and I would say I kind of feel it's my job it's a thing that I love to do actually is to expand students in terms of what their expectations are what the possibilities are uh, partly I think it's just a product of you know people that come to Bethel like the socioeconomic class that's coming to Bethel they tend to be perhaps a bit more disconnected from physically making things than I was when I was here I came from a, a slightly different economic class um, and part of it is, you know, it's like a, you know, when I was growing up, me and my friends would actually work on cars. It's like you can't do that anymore. You know, it's like you can't. You take them to the shop and you write a check. That's how you fix your car now. Um, and so a certain disconnection from some physical actions like that in our lives. But um, I think more of it has to do with, um, you know, sort of the natural thing when you grow up. You, you, um, you sort of learn what the potentials are. And I love that in my class. You know, I will frequently, almost, you know, every, every project, you know, students will work and, and I kind of feel it's my job to raise those expectations. It's like, oh, by the way, this, you know, just, I, I'll, I'll ask questions like this. It's like, what if I told you to make this a hundred times bigger? You know, and students, I mean, they will literally laugh. It's like, oh, that's, that would be impossible. Like, there's no way I could do this. Like, oh, let's talk about that. And so I kind of show them what that would actually look like. And pretty often, students will then sort of turn around and make the project a hundred times bigger, you know, than what it was. Like once you actually kind of go through those steps. And so, I would say in terms of the expectations, I feel it's a big part of my job because students sort of self-limit and self, self maybe self-limit is a good way to say that, uh, self-limit what they think that they're capable of. Just partly that's in terms of like physicality, but also that's just in terms of quality. They just don't see themselves as, as artists. We've kind of done this thing to, to art where we've, we've put it off and we've created a, this aura around it where um, we've made it perhaps seem a little, a little bit more special than, than what it is. Part of what we do is in the classroom, a lot of what we do is, that's the most important is, not, is outside that classroom. We're building a relationship with students. I mean, I still have a lot of students that I keep up with. Uh, partly in the art, that's a, a bit unique, I think, to the nature of some of the arts and that, uh, you know, people are always looking and making connections and doing shows and working on projects and, you know, networking is a, it's a terrible word, but there's a, an aspect to that. I would maybe just say, um, you know, making connections to other people is a really, it's a big part of the currency in, in art, like how you get work put in the world, how you get things, projects off the ground and so on. You know, you don't want to force that, but you do want to be open to that um, with all students. Um, I, th I think it's, it would be easy, and I have seen some, some art departments around. I haven't been a part of those, but I have seen some art departments around that get a little clicky because it becomes based on, you know, who the instructor likes or not. And I would say one of the things that I really love about art department, you know, my colleagues, is that it's a, prof you know, they do try to build professional relationships with, you know, anybody that walks in the door. You know, so it's not about friendship. You know, friendship can generate and emerge from those experiences, but that's not the foundation of these things. It's more just like, what are you interested in? Um, some things are perhaps not about friendships. You know, they're about other kinds of relationships. Uh, and I think my colleagues are actually quite good at that, um, you know, building that kind of um, positive energy within the department. I would hope that they say that I was uh, enthusiastic and, um, push them to make better work than they thought they could make. I, that would be a big one for me because I think quite often our expectations for our own work are, are low, um, both in terms of, like I said, the physicality of it, but also the aspirations for it. Like what, what's that possibility about? Like how can you put a work into a community in a way that, that transforms that community or has meaning within that community? Um, and to me that feels like a really essential part of that conversation. So yeah, you know, just like raising those, raising those expectations. I think it's hard because of the way that we structure education a lot, but I go back to my educational, you know, mentoring and teaching um, and just the guidelines that the teachers often have to hit. Um, you know, artists, our teachers have a lot of freedom, especially at the college level. And one of, that, one of the things that that allows is a lot of experimentation. I'm not quite sure that other fields have as much potential for experiment. Maybe they do, maybe I have a misunderstanding of that. But I think back to my earlier years when I was teaching nine different content areas, um, and I, there were days when I would wake up 
and I literally was 24 hours ahead of the students. And that I wish that was an exaggeration, but I was literally 24 hours ahead of my understanding of what I was teaching, uh, you know, relative to the students. Um, made it work. I tried a lot of things, um, and you know, having to you know adapt in so many situations in so many areas. I was able to pull out a lot of things and, and figure out a lot of things, you know, what worked and what didn't work very quickly, which I think is, would, be a lot, would have been a lot harder if I had been teaching like one content area, you know, with, a, in, with an inherited curriculum. Um, I think that would be a lot harder. I mean, I literally could just wake up and say, we're making, and I have done that, I did this with that class, we're making four foot by eight foot paintings today, you know, and go get the plywood and put it in front of the students and say, let's figure out how to do this together. Um, the gift that my department chair had, and also Bethel has this kind of freedom too, you know, the, the freedom to, to allow faculty to do that is, is huge because it's challenging, it's disruptive, but it can generate so much great energy and it can, it can do so many things. Um, so I would say, you know, like experiment as much as you can. You know, don't, don't be, you know, there, have, there are perfect curriculums out there. There are fantastic curriculums out there um, that if, if you try to adopt them, they're just not going to work for you. They, they just won't. You're not that teacher, you know. Uh, I remember a situation where that happened to me. I was teaching ISA here, and, uh, you know, the first time I was teaching it, um, I asked a colleague for some of his notes, and he very generously gave me all of his notes. And so I started teaching from his you know, from his curriculum, it was terrible. I was horrible. You know, it's like students didn't care. I didn't care. You know, I just wasn't able to communicate it. And after about three weeks of that, I just threw it out and started over. Uh, and then I started to really started to work. Um, and so that kind of experimentation, you know, playing to your strengths instead of, you know, playing to what you think you ought to do, uh, I think, you know, is a lot more important. I'm a lot more conversational. The, part, the curriculum that I had borrowed was, I don't think you would mind, it was from, from Wayne. You know, Wayne's a fantastic art historian, and he can stand up there and really make it work for students. He can lay out a, 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 like a transcendent lecture. I think Wayne is a, an amazing teacher. Like he actually, some of his lectures are literally kind of transcendent experiences. Um, I'm not that guy, you know. I'm a much more conversational teacher. You know, so when I was teaching ISA, I, you know, trying to do Wayne's thing, I couldn't do it. So I stopped. I started having conversations with students, and it worked much, much better. Um, so I would say, you know, sort of understanding who you are through some sense of experimentation. I think that's really huge. Um, it really helps if you have a lot of freedom. You know, if you are inheriting a curriculum, it's like, man, that's tough. I think you have to work hard to, to figure out ways to, you know, find margin in there where you can... Um, you know, turn it into your own curriculum because I think that's that's partly what students are responding to is who you are as a maker and you know as a teacher and and how you're relating to them as a teacher. You know, that's a big part of that connection. It's like it's not about that. Of course, it's about content. That's what we're there to teach. But that content is really like how that's delivered and the, that personal connection is super important. And that's you just got to find a way to make that work for yourself. What what has felt important to me as a student was. Um, follow the thing that you're really interested in because you know by the time students get here they've had 15, 16, 17, 18 years of people telling them who they are and what they're successful at you know um, and, and grades can be terrible in this way you know um, but I think that by the time students get here they like I said they have They've had so much content, so many people telling them like who they are, that uh, you, you know, it's time to just tell all those people thanks very much, but please go away, um, and just really listen to like what is it? What is the thing that 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 sort of gets you going? You know, like what is where do you find the line of of inquiry for yourself that's fascinating? Like what sort of fascinates you, and like do more of that. Um, literally, um, I, I, I don't necessarily believe that, um, you know, we're born with a distinctive, you know, interest in mind or mission or vocation or, you know, calling or whatever. I think in my case, I, I kind of was, you know, like an artist. I'm glad I found this thing. Otherwise, I'd have just been a bad carpenter all my life, kind of making things that I didn't really want to make. Um, but I do think that, that we are not given useless gifts. 
Um, and in a place like Bethel University, it's very easy because this place will affirm a lot of things that are useful, useful for the Christian faith. That's not necessarily what God wants you to do, you know? It's like not necessarily what you should do. I heard this guy talk uh, a couple of, a while back. A guy came and spoke to my church. Um, this guy was a missionary. It's like all his life he kind of felt like he needed, like he was that, that person, the guy who was really driven. You know, he had a heart for missions and wanted to do it and became a missionary and was, was doing it and had gotten funding and he was in, in Indonesia. Uh, and he's standing there in the shower one day and kind of just, he's miserable. He's literally sort of weeping in the shower because he sees this insect climbing up the wall of the shower and all he wants to do is to paint that insect. That's all. That's really interesting to me because, you know, so he quit. He quit being a missionary. And he went to be, become a painter. And now he has... Now it's like his life is working for him, you know? Um, you know, he was, he was miserable before. He couldn't stand it. He hated everything he was doing, even though from, you know, our perspective here at Bethel, he was doing a lot of great stuff, you know? His faith told him he was doing a lot of stuff. His perception of God told him, you know, you're doing some great stuff, but all he wanted to do was to paint that bug. And he kind of heard a voice. He relays that he heard a voice telling him paint the bug, you know? So he did. Now he's having this career, he's still in the visual arts, he's finding ways to make that work and it's really working for him. So I would say, you know, quit telling yourself what you're experiencing and listen to what you're experiencing. What are you really interested in? God doesn't give us useless gifts. It's a hard time to be in higher ed. In my lifetime, teaching lifetime, um, the, the amount of investment. Actually, like if you look at, at institutions, like the student-teacher ratios at Bethel and outside of Bethel are relatively the same over the last 25 years. However, the amount of, of administration uh, during that time over the last 25 years has gone up something like four to five fold. It's amazing. Um, I don't have an easy answer to this. You know, in my perhaps um, darker moments, I have very easy answers, you know, that were administrative heavy, but I don't think it's that simple. Um, but I do think that um, that, that's a, that presents a big challenge. And I, uh, my fear is that uh, the, the economic pressure that that's, that puts on students um, is being perhaps disproportionately kind of laid upon faculty in terms of getting rid of programs that don't work, getting, you know, that are not productive. Uh, getting rid of uh, faculty that, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, and I and and that's a big concern to me. Um, that I think that that the problems are really not the, the problems are are less about programs and faculty, and they're more about you know these other situations. Uh, I don't have, like I said, I don't have easy solutions, but I do think that that's, in terms of the institution. Um, that's that's a, a bigger issue, um, and getting back to this idea of you know functionality that I was you know it's like efficiencies you know efficiencies is very easy to sort of circumscribe and, and sort of cut things out because of efficiencies. It's worth you know this program is not efficient, that program is not efficient. Well, you know what Google, you know if you were to look at like I said, Google has you know allows their engineers you know 10% of their time. I think it's 10% to do whatever they want. If you were to look at any one program, you know, any one individual over the course of a year, that's probably, you know, it's like, wow, it would be easy to cut that out. It immediately produce produ increase production, you know, but that's really not how this kind of investment works. And I get, um, I get concerned that that's kind of where we're headed. And I, I, um, um, I said I don't have simple answers, I don't have easy answers, I don't think it's a matter of just like cut administrators and you know, kind of get it back down to that. I don't think it's possible anymore. Um, I think we've sort of you know, crossed the Rubicon on that one. 
Um, but the the costs, um, maybe I would, you know, to boil it down perhaps a little bit more, I would say that the um, things that look like inefficiency from the outside are very frequently our most valuable assets. And um, I get very concerned. I think this current administration really understands that. I think this current administration at Bethel University really kind of gets it. Um, but, you know. Jay's not going to be president forever. And, you know, the next one that comes along, you know, maybe there's another economic bump and then what happens? What happens to this program? What happens to that program? It's easy to let those things go. And a university is a fragile thing.